0: Yeah, you see that coming through in the present. So even the idea of of giving kids a decent meal is is seen as encouraging the poor to breed.
1: Welcome to Surviving Society.
2: With Chantel Lewis and Tiso Regis.
1: Executively produced by Georgia Forey Addo. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon.
2: If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating, and reviewing.
1: Welcome to another episode of Surviving Society Podcast. We are really excited today to be joined by Dr. Lisa Tilly, who is a long-suffering lecturer in politics at Birkbeck. (laughs) I said long-suffering because Lisa asked me to say that. I didn't actually. (laughs) Lisa, lecturer in politics, right? Yeah. I think you might be the first lecturer in politics we've had on the show. And I want to ask you, right? When I first went to university Mm -hmm. and I took some modules in politics, I was really excited because I loved politics from a very, very young age. Like I used to watch like Parliament Live like when I was like eight. Like I've always just (laughs) loved (laughs) politics. Yeah. I was just obsessed with it. Ah, So I was really excited. When I went to do sociology, I was like, right, I'm going to do some politics modules. It was so right wing. I wasn't expecting it at all. So it's really exciting to have someone like you on the show who's a politics lecturer, because what's wrong with your discipline? (laughs) Sorry, I got straight into it then. Welcome, Lisa. (laughs)
0: Thank you so much. Thanks a lot for having me. I'm like very overexcited to be there. I don't know how to answer that first question actually. There might be a slight problem with some people in the discipline and there are obviously very key figures who are at the forefront of certain political movements right now. I don't think it's a surprise that political science is churning out these figures. Not to get into libelous territories, I probably won't go any further, but then Then again, you know, there are some really great people within the discipline and there's been some fantastic kind of moves towards decolonising the discipline in recent years. There's a lot of overlap with international relations and there's some really great IR people who've who've been at the forefront of trying to globalise the discipline and, and have a bit of a reckoning with its problematic
2: past.
1: T, is this to do with your guy, Max Weber? The politics mm. is a vocation thing.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Max Faber. He's not my guy.
1: God, no, defend yourself. I've said he's your guy. I feel like he's your he's guy.
2: Not, he's <laughs> not my guy. It's all right. Listen, like the reason, the reason why I, Max Faber, when I first got into sociology, like I was impressed, man. It's, a, it's the first thing I read. And as an undergrad, I was like, wow, oh, this guy's slightly different. And he was saying something different about ideas. Ideas are quite powerful. Black Lives Matter, is an idea. So, that's, in that sense, he's my guy, but he's not my guy, my guy. You get me? <laughs> my guy, my guy. What? <laughs>
1: Lisa, so the way you write about post the way you write about race, plantations as well, and the histories of that is just absolutely incredible. And we're going to put into the episode notes um, some links to your papers. And we encourage all listeners, like if you want any of Lisa's work sent to you and you haven't got institutional access, please do message us. But one of the things we really wanted to talk to you about is the connection between COVID-19 discourses around population control mm-hmm. and the far right. The Far Right is something that we talk about a lot on the show, something that we've, well, TISO's sort of been teaching me about for the past sort of four years. But the way you were able to, particularly in your Discover Society article that is going to be in the episode note, interweave those things, it's very, very clear, quite scary, but also sort of kind of for me puts to the forefront what it actually is we need to say and where our arguments need to go as in against those people so I was wondering if you could just start off by talking a little bit
0: about that okay thanks thanks very much again for the really kind words this um this podcast is really like the academic equivalent of a hot stone massage for the ego it's so nice to have people (laughs) say (laughs) so on the question of population and COVID-19 and the governance of the pandemic over the over the past few years I've been teaching population in relation to the environment which is like straight away alarm bells kind of going off because it gets you into all those into that kind of eco-fascist territory really I've learned a lot through through teaching that in a very like critical um, way um, and working through the histories of thought on on population, um, and tracing out with my students, I suppose, all the different genealogies of, of thought, which are sometimes a little bit contradictory. Um, what I was trying to get at in the Discover Society piece is obviously when when COVID hit, we we had this because I called it saying the quiet part out loud. For a lot of characters, you know, there was a complete revelation not that we didn't necessarily know it already, but of their complete callousness. Journalists in The Telegraph saying we should just let the old people die because they cost a lot of money anyway. People like Toby Young saying more or less the same thing. Dominic Cummings saying something along those lines um, and then that being denied by Dan the street. Yeah, there was a kind of revelation in the way that these right wing figures who either support the government or are central to government were, were thinking at the time in, in demographic terms. And in a sense, it was it was a little bit surprising because it's like, well, this the older population who are most vulnerable are also your voting base. You know, you're supposed to really like these people. But then when you look at right-wing political demography studies that the aging population obviously is always presented as as a real problem, you know, and it's presented as a problem in kind of geopolitical terms in the sense that if there's too many old people, it hits the the kind of power of the state, the power of the state diminishes um, because you've got fewer kind of working, fighting men. But also... That group is very closely tied in the kind of economic calculus of the state with, quote unquote, the immigrant population, you know. So there's a really great book by Michelle Murphy called The Economization of Life, which is so brilliant. And she she traces particularly the thinking of a guy called Raymond Pearl back in the 1920s who starts doing all these natural experiments. He starts with Drosophila, which are little fruit flies, and he has fruit flies in in jars. And he studies them at different levels, you know, with their food supply, and looks at what happens when the population gets too much, and the food supply dwindles, and death rate starts to increase. And then he plots out this, like, s curve of a population trajectory and then he says oh this is the same as algerians in colonial france right so he'll talk about how whatever happens with the fruit flies in the jar can then be abstracted to whatever level of population you're talking about whatever population of animals or humans that you're talking about so raymond Pearl's one of these kind of super racist colonial demographer types but his work is, is really at the basis of, of State's kind of understanding of how population can be managed in relation to economy. What his kind of contribution was, that uh, was really that you can make interventions to to alter the level of population for that to have kind of economic benefits. That line of thinking is actually distinct from the eugenic thinking at the time, which is about managing heredity and the heredity of certain traits.
1: So he gets the flies in the jar, right? And he's like, right, you can apply this to populations. And is it like a genuine belief that that is how it works? Or is he like, oh my God, I can sell this idea to the French colonial administration to show them how to control their colonial subjects mm-hmm. does that matter, or, or can we never know that mm-hmm. like and i'm not trying to justify what he's doing i'm just trying to like see the dehumanization part of economic gain or is it a belief that like the french algérians were equivalent to flies
0: so the dehumanization is is just absolutely central to colonial thinking at the time. So researchers sort of share that generally. I mean, obviously there are some brilliant people around the time who were dissenting and, and push back against that and push more radical humanism that included everybody. But Raymond Pearl's thing is he's part of a load of scientists at the time who want to import the methods from the natural sciences into the the social sciences. And this is this is what population demography kind of comes out of. This is the roots of of your political demography today. Still today, you know, political demographers think they can use the methods of the natural sciences and and apply it to to the social world.
1: I didn't realise that there was like a, a spectrum of how these scientists thought.
0: So the central concern at the time, especially in these interwar years, is the racial balance of power. This is the central concern, and it's the racial balance of power in demographic terms, right? So those in the colonial metropole, the separation is made right along what Du Bois called the colour line, right? So you've got whites and non-whites, and the problem that's identified at the time is white birth rates are, are falling, the white race is, is dying out and black and brown people appear to be reproducing much faster. This is the years way before GDP became the central objective of government. And it's amazing when you go back through the archives and see see how much emphasis there is on population concerns, on demographics and specifically on the racial balance of power across the colour line. So there's lots of people are thinking about this, but they're thinking about this from different angles. Um, so whether you've got your eugenesis, who are thinking about how to improve the white race so obviously they're doing all these horrendous things separating disabled people locking up disabled people in in institutions with the view to improvement in inverted commas of the white race trying to stop working class whites from breeding quite so rapidly because their genes and their stock seem to be inferior and they're they're obviously reproducing much more rapidly than middle class populations. eugenicists who are very prominent at time. But then you've got people like Raymond Pearl, who are looking at more economic concerns and how um, demography can be managed in relation to the economy. So there, there are different kind of genealogies there.
2: Could you argue that these genealogies are based on a, a Europeanization? So from feudalism, you have a sense of there's a, an elite, And there's the great unwashed and they always have to maintain that separateness. And this bleeds through. And when you move from feudal into industrial society, a continuation of these logics and these Mm -hmm. logics, they get expanded when you come to go to the colonial period. It makes sense because it's already an idea that's already embedded into the European consciousness that an elite that has to maintain power. There's a growing mass of people that we need to control. It seems always apparent.
0: That's true in a sense. And that comes out of um, Malthusianism. But for eugenesis, actually, there is quite an important distinction in that they also see, like, the elites, elites the aristocracy, as inbred and, and actually dysgenic, you know. And so they wouldn't see the, the reproduction of the elites as something that's good for the white gene pool overall, you know. Really? Yeah. So, that's so interesting. Um,
2: <laughs> so someone like the Habsburgs. Yeah.
0: Who's a Habsburg?
2: An inbred European royal house, like super inbred. Insanely, (laughs) different.
0: So, but with Malthusian thinking, which is really at the, this is the bedrock of conservatism, you know, it's...
1: Let's take the listeners on a journey, right? What is Malthusianism?
0: Malthus is writing in like the 1700s.
1: My God, Lisa, you've read everything.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And so Malthus's thing is, right, we have this central problem, which is that the poor won't stop reproducing and in his stuff he goes into you know the sexual urges of the poor and you know he, he talks about all of this stuff so the poor won't stop reproducing the population increases exponentially so it means it's timesing itself all the time whereas the food supply only increases arithmetically. So you've got additions, additions, additions. So he observes that the the problem is that the poor will carry on reproducing, whereas the elites will not reproduce as as quickly. So it's a real kind of anti-poor narrative that he has. And And he says that, there needs to be um, artificial checks on population and especially the reproduction of the poor. Otherwise, if we let the population get out of hand, there will be what he calls natural checks, which is things like famine, which will then have an impact on the elites. So a plague on all of our houses. So for him, he's all about the protection of the elites, against this demographic threat of the poor overrunning society and collapsing the food supply.
1: Bringing it back to contemporary UK, today is the 23rd of October so this episode's not coming out until December. Happy Christmas everyone.
0: <laughs>
1: Just thinking about what's happened this week, the government have said they won't extend free school meals to children even though there's sort of four million children that are going hungry at the moment mm-hmm. in the school holidays and some of the Discourse that you're seeing from the Tories, in particular, that that are justifying not voting for this mm-hmm. extension, reminds me of the things you're talking about.
2: Yeah. One Tory MP said, "He said kids die all the time." It, this idea that you become surplus to economic requirement—it's it's bound up in the logics of, mm-hmm. of capitalism.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and it is. It's definitely the bedrock of conservative thoughts I mean Malthus at the time is talking about the poor laws and his writing about population is is writing against the the poor laws which you know obviously you've got this really horrendous like disciplinary form of, of welfare at the time which is workhouses and everything else it's not as if people are living it up you know not that people ever have like lived it up on welfare but Yeah, you see that coming through in the present. So even the idea of of giving kids a decent meal is is seen as encouraging the poor to breed.
1: I feel like it sometimes goes beyond the kind of deserving and undeserving poor thing, this notion of children eating or being hungry Mm -hmm. is occurring within your day-to-day discourse and like I know it's always difficult for people like us to kind of engage both intellectually and maybe morally with people that are like more conservative than us Mm -hmm. it is quite interesting groups of people that are seeing this way of thinking as outrageous who I wouldn't necessarily agree with and I don't really like how this sort of extremity is now getting their attention I'm not trying to romanticize that it does feel, and I know Tiso's spoken about this on the podcast as well, and Catherine Median did as well, it feels like Victorian. Like, Mm -hmm. it feels so outrageous that it's something new, but it's not new. It's based on the stuff that you're teaching us about now. Did I think we would be here in, like, even Mm -hmm. this time last year? No.
2: Those people who are classed as surplus, how the kind of dynamics is displayed on their body. So, They had a similar idea where people only had value if they could generate income, generate money. So the idea when they used to do it to the Irish or the colonial subjects, but in this kind of era of the COVID-19, when they're telling people get back to work, you have value when you're back at work. Those same logics are back in play again. And it's something that's very old. It's been repackaged. People actually buy into it. So you see people saying we will need to get back to work. Well, well, why? Like I could, I could die.
1: Right. So you've mm-hmm. taught us a bit about that. Now, can you teach us about? Because some people talk about these groups of people on the show, and particularly when we've had people that work on um, the far right and stuff. Particularly, like Aaron mm. and Iranian have spoke to us a little bit about these groups. But can you talk about ecofascism?
0: I can say a little bit about ecofascism. It's it's not my specialist area, and there's there's people who are. Looking very closely at this stuff and really getting into these, especially the online cultures of, of ecofascism, who'd, who'd be able to tell you a lot more this kind of thinking than me. But it really hinges on the population question and. Inherits all of those um, those ideas and concerns that we've already talked about from European colonial population management. I mean, there there is kind of they have the same set of concerns. It's about the racial balance of power across across the color line. So their their central concern is with falling white birth rates um, measured against um, the perceived overpopulation of of black and brown people, and this has become more prominent, I suppose, in in recent years with, you know, the the Christchurch shooter in in New Zealand in his manifesto that he he left, was directly referencing white genocide and and white replacement conspiracy theories. Also the El Paso shooter in in the same year, the same thing. This is something which has been directly connected with these, these very violent projects in recent times. But I think what's quite interesting is is not to see this as something new because quite often it's presented that the left has always had this concern with environmentalism or that environmentalism has been the, the domain of a certain section of the left and now the right is suddenly concerned with the environment. So we have eco-fascism is born. I think it's much more complicated than that. And if you look at the history of, of fascism, it's always had this very specific kind of environmentalism which is very central to it which it relates to autochthonous species of plants and the restoration of the perfect landscape and you know the the kind of green untouched landscape
1: it reminds me of nazi germany yeah yeah
0: exactly the proper native species and the proper native people um and it's the whole blood and soil thing that connects those those two together so fascism has always had that kind of certain form of of environmentalism which is very nationally defined which of course is is not a real environmentalism you know because fascism enacts so much violence both within and beyond its borders which feeds into ecological degradation at the same time so any kind of environmentalism which is nationally defined is you know a, a bs environmentalism basically
2: how that narrative of a population fits in that current context of brexit it makes sense because you're talking about resources like there's too mm. many brown people coming mm-hmm. to take our mm-hmm. resources so we need to look after our nhs when you're speaking like it almost seems like common sense to people because mm-hmm. when they walking down the street anecdotally they might see more brown people mm-hmm. or more people from central europe or eastern europe in a particular area. So it makes it seems to make sense on a kind of anecdotal local level. So I was going to say, how do you push back against that those kind of logic?
1: Because it's so easy for the right to present mm. these narratives in a digestible way to people that assert nationalism. Like, it's mm. so straightforward for them. And just considering what Tiso's just said, additionally looking at COVID-19, looking at what's happening with borders, and looking how the discourse of the virus spreading through people and through populations, like, this is quite good terrain now for these people that we're talking about. This is very useful for them. But is it? Mm. Is my question as well, Mm. because they're not immune from virus. So, this is quite an important moment for the far right.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just to go back to Tiso's points around Brexit, I think these are these are really important. But I think the thing to bear in mind with the whole Brexit thing is that it was never, ever really about numbers. You know, you, you scratch the surface of, of what these people want and they quickly jump to a different kind of geopolitical imaginary which would involve as much immigration but a different kind of immigration if you know what I mean. So Farage and and a lot of the people around him and supporters of the Brexit project are really into this idea of KANSAP, this like grouping of the old metropole obviously the uk with its white liberal settler colonies imagined to be still white spaces so to have radical freedom of movement between the uk canada australia new zealand this kind of thing so it's replacing a certain kind and and when you start and when you push them on this they'll say oh well they're english-speaking countries so it makes sense for us to have um, movement between mm. them so then if you say to them well how about having India in with that because India is really in former colony it's an, an English-speaking country um, largely then they'll say no you know there, there's reasons why we don't want India <laughs> as part of Kenzak and it's really it's about race it's about race and racism it's not about mm-hmm. numbers so a lot of the time you do get eco-fascists who do care about the environment you do get fascists Who are, who are wedded to a particular romanticisation of the landscape. But then at the same time, there's also people who will like instrumentalise environmental concerns in the service of of a racial project. And not to say that Brexiteers were were great environmentalists. Um, I think the the Brexit project was certainly about, about race and not about, about numbers.
1: Following on from Fiso's point, thinking about COVID-19 now. Thinking about these genealogies of population, quote unquote, control, eugenics, all this stuff. And thinking about COVID-19, borders as well, and the containment of the virus. When this all started in March, me and Tisa were talking sort of on a day-to-day basis about what how the far right, how they're going to make this an opportunity for them. Like, what are they, how are they going to do it? Well, we've got a pretty right-wing government, so there's that stuff which is obviously ever-present. We're still waiting to see what the actual impact is going to be, the social and economic impacts are going to be of COVID-19, as in on a, on a more larger scale. I know we're seeing it employment figures, death rate, of course. We're yet to see maybe how the far right are going to take hold of this space.
0: It's no surprise that the hardest right governments that we can um, identify at the moment, so the, the UK, the US... Um, Brazil, Bolsonaro, these are the places where the pandemic governance has allowed the virus to just totally let rip. There's obviously a reason why those countries are, are doing a bad job, whereas other countries have, have got much more of a handle on it. Um, and I don't think it's entirely down to down to competence.
1: Willful neglect.
0: Yeah, willful neglect certainly, certainly covers it. But um, not having the impetus there to control it in a really efficient way maybe it does just come down to incompetence but (laughs) and and obviously a lot of this has been said very openly by by certain figures you know it's the older population who are going to die in a couple of years anyway it's those with quote unquote underlying health conditions which is like a really eugenic sort of way of saying well maybe they shouldn't be part of the gene pool anyway you know it almost feels like since it's been really obvious that the the effects of the, the virus are racially distributed as well, black and brown people are overwhelmingly affected by it, then it feels like there's there's almost been less of a kind of impetus to, to do anything about it. Whereas maybe if it's if it's a virus that was attacking you know working age white men then there would be much more impetus to to tackle it but we we sort of know what the bedrock of, of conservatism is in particular and and this hard right version of conservatism which is in power at the moment I suppose not Not really that much of a surprise.
2: I think in your piece, Discover Society, you spoke about the kind of primary concern of getting rid of the old people, but getting rid of like the black people being more affected. They've, that's become a secondary concern, right? Mm-hmm. I would say, isn't it similar to, like we had the epidemic of the AIDS in the 80s? So you have the same kind of concern where there's a there's an idea of element of contagion there. Mm-hmm. There's surplus requirements now. Could you like unpack the idea of the economisation of, mm-hmm. of individuals? Because I think that's a key aspect of it because sometimes it's, it presents itself as, as racial and then sometimes it presents itself as purely economic. And I think I think sometimes the hybridization of, of those two things I think,
0: yeah, so I haven't done any work specifically on HIV and AIDS, but that's a really interesting time to to compare actually and to think about. Certainly, in terms of where um, HIV and AIDS became really prevalent in parts of the global south, actually the concern was specifically that this is hitting people of working age, and so this is where the economization of life comes in because the need to kind of stem that spread of, of that virus. Um, was specifically tied to to GDP, and you know who's going to who's going to produce and who's going to deliver these developmental outcomes. I don't know anything more about how that sort of manifested in the global north.
2: So one of the kind of interventions people make, if you have an a certain uh, an aging population with a mm-hmm. declining birthright yeah. is is through immigration, yeah. right? You import people. Sub-Saharan Africa has the has like mm-hmm. the highest working population in the world. You import people to resolve this problem, mm-hmm. and obviously the declining birth rate is the European-wide problems. Italy and Hungary were offering money for mm-hmm. people to have kids and loans and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. a very this kind of notion of the motherland, like you have babies for the motherland, mm-hmm. but because immigration is off the table, how did you confront this issue? Europe uses Japan as the example.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's really simple, isn't it? You've got people who are trying to get into the country who are working age, so you just allow them in. I mean, no borders, right? It's like the very simple solution to it. But because of this centrally kind of racist management of of population, that idea is sort of foreclosed. But Hungary is a really interesting, really, really disturbing one because that's a real kind of white nationalist, orientation which has taken hold and it's and it's unashamed their central issue is you know we've got declining white birth rates um we we're not reproducing the working age population so the economy is gonna tank at some point so what we need to do is encourage the right kind of of white women to to give birth right and so the way that they do it is They give loans to women. Right. So the the loan goes to the woman. And I think the loan is around about the level of twenty five thousand pounds, which is in Hungary. It's a lot of money because it's average income is a lot lower than, than it is here. So it's a lot of money. The loan gets written off for the woman if the woman produces three children. Right. So she has got to have three babies and then the loan's written off. Right. So but then in the meantime, let's say her husband leaves her after two babies or she has fertility problems and can't produce any more. She's left with the two kids and she's also got the debt as well. So it's kind of a form of debt coercion to get white women to to reproduce. Mm -hmm. Pretty horrendous. Um,
1: I can't believe mm. that. Do you know what though as you were speaking lisa i was literally imagining like that kind of advert or that kind of loan presenting in britain it doesn't feel like we're that far from that kind of discourse because even i don't know what you thought about this lisa but our, when we went into lockdown there was quite a lot of like media discussion about like a, a COVID 19 baby boom and it just felt a bit like it felt obviously like a bit distasteful mm-hmm. but loads of people are dying mm-hmm. and it also felt a bit like oh this feels a bit like a, a kind of nationalism combined with a vulgar population discourse yeah and and, and obviously it, it matched with the discourses around the war um, around the, and around the second, first and second world war like this sort of wartime spirit like everyone's going to come back from war and we're all going to make babies do you know what i mm-hmm. mean like the sort of mm-hmm. baby boomer type thing it's mm-hmm. like oh my god you're mm-hmm. like connecting that to a pandemic lockdown mm-hmm. It it kind of reminds me a bit of that yeah
0: super super creepy and it also just shows how women's bodies are sort of an extension of technology of the state basically some of these discourses around around women's bodies and and the reproduction of the right kind of population have become quite subtle obviously in hungary they're really really out there but but we still hear like swing from from the kind of pronatalist measures to let's just rein in the 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 wrong kind of people who are reproducing too much so and then obviously the other side of this is that women especially racialized women um, working class women lower caste women um, have been subject to really extreme um, sterilization projects in various different parts of the world for, for such a long time so obviously the most recent case is within ice facilities in in the us right did you see that that doctor there was a whistleblower who yeah this is it this is a doctor who was performing sterilizations without consent or under sketchy circumstances um on migrant women there's cases against indigenous women in the us and canada up until fairly recent times you know eugenics programs in in carolina against um black women specifically, like tens of thousands of of black women sterilized. And yeah, so that's the other side of, of that. So it always sends chills down my spine when I hear somebody kind of political demographer in a suit stand up at a podium and say, overpopulation in the tropical belt is what's causing most of the world's problems because they never get to the logical conclusion of that which is what a states going to do about that when once that problem has been identified? And the answer is, you know, some pretty horrendous population interventions, which women of colour are going to be subject to.
2: Like Harry and Meghan are both quite right on the hip with it, but they made statements about developing countries saying you need to kind of work out your birth control, mm-hmm. like your birth rate is too yeah. high. Yeah. And,
0: and David Attenborough as well. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> the spiritual father of the nation. <laughs> what's
1: wrong with these people it's so lazy like do you know what I mean just yeah. on a level like mm-hmm. us, was just talking we're just talking here quite yes yeah, specifically about this the scholarship of this but mm-hmm. like I'm learning from you, Lisa, and I'm learning during this podcast, people that assert themselves to the right of what you're saying about population. It's just, it's so, for me, it's just so cruel. And like, Mm. cruel doesn't doesn't do the inhumanity justice, to be honest. But it's also like, yeah, like Tisa's just saying, like Harry and Meghan, like David Attenborough, like, it feels like they're really far from understanding what they're talking about or the consequences of what they're talking about. Like what you were just saying, Lisa and it just yeah. it just troubles me, mm-hmm. frustrates me.
0: Yeah, the other the other person that we can talk about is is Bill Gates. If you want to talk about how it's not the far right, don't say Bill. Cool.
1: Tiso say- loves tech. Love T, but I'm sorry, your guy is not. <laughs> he's not he's right. a problem. <laughs>
0: You know, you need to read the work of Carpana um, Wilson on Bill Gates because she's done such brilliant work um, looking into into the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and all the stuff that they get up to. And obviously this is a really nice, like, liberal, charitable venture, not far right at all. And and they have this programme, I don't know if you've seen it, it's called FP 2020. And they had the um, the objective was to extend... Um, voluntary birth control, in scare quotes, to 120 million girls and women before a specific date. So they had targets of when when they they're extending this voluntary birth control to, and their preferred methods are um, injectable contraceptives and implants. Right, so it's long term stuff. It's they're not distributing condoms and. Some of the things that they distribute, so like Depo-Provera, for instance, which is a birth control method, which um, I think in some places it's actually banned because of its side effects. And that also, if you think about the process of having an an implant fitted, you you really want to be in a very competent, sterile environment with someone who really knows what they're doing. But when these things are distributed in very poor parts of the world, they're, they're not, basically, um, they're fitted um, in, in very sketchy locations, which are not necessarily hygienic. And there's also a connection between depropovera use and the increased prevalence of, of HIV in HIV prevalent areas. And, you know, the foundation totally knows this, but they, they carry on anyway. This is all part of a very complex, I suppose, set of, of imperatives, which relates Obviously, there's a there's a racial dimension to it. These are very poor women of colour. Um, I don't think you could do the same thing in, in a white majority country with wealthy women. It relates to neoliberal development imperatives. So one thing is, if you reduce the birth rate, you reduce the number of kids, you reduce the amount of spending on education right so immediately someone's doing the economic kind of calculus here also if you can prevent women from having children for much longer they are productive in the productive economy for much longer so this relates to what we might call the feminization of labor or what feminist political economists have called the the feminization of labor which is the movement of women into on mass into into the factories for for mass production in, in the global south but obviously very low wages and in in rubbish conditions but yeah the idea that you can delay their their kind of social reproduction so that they can be productive for longer in the productive economy is
2: also part of it but from certain angles like someone like Bill Gates we talk about this idea of population control presents itself as a humanistic kind of Mm -hmm. endeavor which is which is the troubling thing because it presents itself as a rational way of looking at the world like like there's a finite amount of resources and there's x amount of people if you speak to people those kind of cold logics it almost seems like it makes sense from a Mm. humanistic so like it's almost utilitarian we get rid of some just for the happiest number for everyone else and i think that's what's quite problematic about it
1: it's kind of what i was saying before Mm. t but i think you've articulated it better than me you can see how easy it is for them to pitch this argument but equally if you listen to someone like yourself lisa actually break it down then it's quite clear how it is highly problematic so is it that they're willfully ignoring what people like you are saying they do realize of mm. course they realize i'm doing that thing where i try and put things like rationality against it but it's not about that is it
0: it's always been the case that um certain people have, have made these calculations around who who's going to be the sacrificial subject for uh, you know what they would see as the greater good maybe um so it's it's complex um there's going back There's you know, there's actually not just liberals, but there's a lot of socialists who developed the eugenics project as well. So you've got someone like Margaret Sanger back in, in the 1920s, really driving forward a lot of these population projects and, and having a hand in, in globalising them as well. So it's never been the preserve of, of the far right.
2: Like you said, Jen, I'm not too sure. if it's, Is it a willful thing or are they, are they truly thinking humanistically? Like planet's got X amount of people in it, and we all need to eat. I don't, I don't
1: know. But It's like the hierarchy of the human as well. Yeah. The global north, you can, if you're making enough money, if you've got a certain class status, and of course, have as many children as you want. Mm-hmm. That reminds me of sort of like Jacob Rees-Mogg. Like, he's allowed to have loads of fucking kids. Do you know what I mean? It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's linked to labour mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. your contribution mm-hmm. to the world.
2: No, I'm just, just kind of thinking, like, mapping onto where I live, like, the narrative around the far right, where in, in East London, they say it's, it's finished because it's a higher rate of Bangladeshis. So the narrative from the far right, the literature, is that it's a no-go area. It's, it's lawless and all those kind of dejectives that kind of go into it. And they are a majority population. And speaking to the, the white people I grew up with here, that to them was a real thing. They were being booted out. And so you see a mass exodus. That's how they felt. and that's So when you speak to them, it's quite interesting to, to look at the theory, but when you're sitting there and you, and you live through like a big exodus of people, like, so when I grew up, it was predominantly white. And in the mid 80s, you see a, a large influx of Bangladeshis coming. And over time, th- there's more and more. And th- obviously there's other things going on, but you see a marked shift between it from going, essentially it was more white looking.
1: But T, I do think we have to be careful in talking about this stuff because there's <laughs> the reason why that they have, there's a sense of, there being a quote-unquote influx mm. and that's because that those ideas are supported by the state and supported by the mm. media there's not a connection made to britain as an empire and it being inevitable that there's going to be that kind of population change in the uh, uk 100
2: I, I get that but yeah. i'm sure from, from, from the average joe who's not thinking in those terms who's just thinking anecdotally like look at his window obviously we sit and we understand those flows as wider flows but the average person is not thinking like that mm.
1: like, no i know they're not yeah. but their support the fact is they are able to think like that and are supported to think like that because they've got various people that are telling them constantly that's what happens Mm -hmm. so if you're around people that are constantly telling you the reason why there's a lot more Bangladeshi families that are in our area now is because of this this and this But that never happens. So it means that like your quote unquote average Joe, it's very easy to touch and to understand what's happening through these very racialized and racist notions of an influx and population demographic change. So I think that I'm not I'm not disputing what you're saying, but I'm just saying it's much easier for there to feel that sense of loss of your space
0: because there are so many people backing what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. How would they respond if there was like an influx of Aussies or New Zealanders? You know, would they pack their bags and go then? Is it a number, again, is it a numbers thing or is it a race thing?
2: Post 2004, like accession of like Poland to the EU, looking at the responses, again, there was a bigger number of them coming <laughs> similar, but not the same. I think it's, it's racially coded, 100%.
0: One final thing is this word population, who does it actually refer to? And when we're talking about managing or controlling population, who comes under that word, please? So who gets to be population, who gets to be outside of it? Feminists writing on should we control population, you know, and they're, they're very clearly when they're, they can casually throw that question into the mix. They know for a fact that they're not included within this word population. It's about who's identified as part of that category, which is to be managed and who's safe from everything that it implies, whether that's like forced birth control, sterilisation
2: or or whatever.
1: I'm thinking so much more now and I feel like like, I've just got loads to read.
2: Population was such an innocent term. I was like, Mm. it just means people.
1: No, like when you talk about population, who are you talking about? Mm. And we know who they're talking about. Lisa, thank you so, so much for joining us. That mm-hmm. was absolutely brilliant. Listeners, we'll be back again next week. Patrons, got another episode for you. Thank you. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening to Surviving Society with Chantal and Tiso. You can now continue the conversation with us on Twitter and Instagram. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon.
2: If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating, and reviewing.